This week on Myths and Legends, there are more stories of Jack the Giant Slayer. Will you learn that if someone walks into your house with, I'm gonna kill you, written on their belt, you should probably believe them and don't offer them a room. You'll also learn how you can make a lot of friends standing outside of town yelling, free money. I know, shocking, right? The creature this week is one that will both eat everything valuable you own and also feel bad about it. Not because it stole from you, but because of its horrible constipation. This is Myths and Legends, episode 157, Giant Problems. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. I like the story of Jack the Giant Killer, not just because it typifies the literature of the Middle Ages and its ridiculous violence and memorable characters, but because of how it begs the question of what it means to be a hero. Jack's first heroic act was an accident, but the whole countryside lauded the killing of Cormoran, the giant who had been pillaging their fields. The second was dumb luck, when he happened to hang two giants with the same rope after they had him in prison. We'll pick up where we left off in episode 97, with Jack back traveling after fortuitously hanging two giants at once. He's on his way to King Arthur's court in Wales, but he still has to sleep somewhere for the night. You know, I'm not telling people how to murder. There's a lot of true crime podcasts out there for that. But when someone is thinking about murdering someone in their sleep, it's maybe not a good idea to mutter in the next room, Though here you lodge with me this night, you shall not see the morning light. My club shall dash your brains outright. To be fair, Jack, who wore Jack the Giant Killer on his belt, decided it would be a good idea to stay the night with a two-headed Welsh giant mistakes were made all around. Jack, very much catching on that giants were not the smartest, came up with an idea. He waited until he heard the creak of the giant's bed in the next room, and then crept from his own bed, stuffing the blankets with things that were not him. He snuck over to the corner and waited. In a matter of minutes, Jack heard the giant quietly open the door and walk into the room, a club in each hand. Both of the giant's heads looked at each other, grinned, and brought the clubs down hard on Jack's bed, not stopping until they heard the satisfying crack of what was surely Jack and not a heap of their belongings because they couldn't whisper to each other despite literally being inches away. Satisfied that the body was dead, but not wanting to turn on a light to confirm it, I mean, if they lit a lamp, then they'd be up all night, the two-headed giant lumbered back to his room, and in minutes, Jack heard twice the giant snoring through the wall. Now, if this were me, I would be out that window so fast. Well, scratch that, I would have bolted as soon as I saw it was a giant. But Jack is not me. He emptied the blanket of all the broken stuff, brushed it under the bed, and went to sleep. He was up mere minutes before the giant the next morning, and the two heads couldn't really believe what they were seeing when Jack emerged from the room, flattening out his bedhead. He nodded. Hey, how's it going? The giant asked if... Jack felt anything the night before. Oh, they probably meant the rats. Yeah, the rats were a little annoying. Sometime in the middle of the night, a rat must have crawled on top of him and slapped him with her tail a few times. He almost woke up. 
The giant's two heads gasped. At breakfast, the giant had to hide his trembling. There was a reason for the belt. This was Jack the Giant Killer. So the giant decided to play nice. He gave Jack a pretty standard giant breakfast of four gallons of hasty pudding, which is like a porridge. Jack thanked him, picked up the bowl, and downed the whole thing. After barely managing dinner the previous night, remember he spent the previous day in jail and traveling, Jack knew he was going to have to find a solution for breakfast. So find a solution he did. In the room where he stayed, there was a leather sack, and Jack had strapped it to his body underneath his heavy coat. He drank as much of the hasty pudding as he could, but the rest of it went to his sack underneath his coat. Jack sat back, contented, with the warm porridge against his body, and he chuckled. He sat up. Hey, did the giant want to see a magic trick? The two giants looked at each other and nodded. Uh, yeah. Who didn't? Jack shrugged. Fair enough. Jack found his hunting knife in his bag, handed it to the giant to have him see it was a real knife, and then Jack jammed the knife into his own stomach. He screamed, the giant screamed, and the porridge spewed out onto the floor and table. He, of course, hadn't actually stabbed his stomach. He just stabbed the bladder of three and a half gallons of porridge underneath his coat. Jack paused to take in their screams and laughed. The giant stopped screaming and looked at Jack laughing and they asked how did he do that jack smirked setting the porridge coated knife down magic the giants were in awe that was awesome usually human mutilation ends up with blood and way too much screaming this one ended with laughter and spirit fingers they wanted to try before jack could tell them that it was a trick before he could show them the porridge bladder or really say anything at all the giants took the knife and plunged it into their own shared stomach, tearing it, like Jack had done, from lungs to waist. Everyone screamed this time, but there was no laughter afterward. Just a weak, yet hopeful, magic from the giant before he died on his breakfast table. Wow, Jack said to himself. Did not see that coming. Huh. All right, then. He wrenched the knife from the giant's grasp, wiped it on the curtains, then carved another notch in his belt. It wasn't his intention, but he was absolutely counting that one. That makes four. Real quickly, we're going to cut to King Arthur's court, but it's not our current King Arthur timeline. It's like an alternate universe Arthur, where he has a teenage son with Guinevere, something that never actually happened in the main narrative, so there's no reason to be confused because we've never talked about it. Anyway, the 40-something King Arthur patted his teenage son on the shoulder. Ah, he remembered his first call to adventure. Wait, no he didn't. He drew the sword from the stone and had been dealing with political crap from that point on. Huh. Anyway, Arthur's son had made his choice. Like so many of Arthur's knights, the boy was going out adventuring in Great Britain. There was, somewhere in Wales, a woman that was possessed by seven demons. She was a beautiful, noble woman, so the prince was going to free her and marry her, hopefully in that order. Arthur knew better than to try to stop his son, and on some level, he was probably pretty proud. He gave his boy his blessing. Unlike Arthur's knights, however, 
his son was not a light packer. Instead of a small saddle pack and squire, Arthur's son went with a horse to ride and a horse packed with gold. Very discreet and safe way to travel the medieval British countryside. When he arrived at the first village a few days down the road, excited to be out and more than a bit weary from lack of sleep, he found a vast crowd of people dragging someone up to stand trial. When Arthur's son saw who or what it was, he facepalmed. It was a corpse. They had arrested a man after he died for the large sum of money he had owed in life. The prince shook his head. This was his time to be a prince. This was his time to step up. He stood between the dead man and the crowd and announced that the creditors should be ashamed of themselves for their cruelty. Go and bury the dead and come to Arthur's son's camp outside of town. There, the man's debt shall be paid. He stepped down, a smile of smug satisfaction on his face. Princely duties, done. As Arthur's son looked on his last two pence, realizing that maybe he shouldn't have announced before the town that there was free money for anyone willing to say that the dead man had owed him something, because as it turned out, the entire village was willing to say that. By the time he realized it, he couldn't go back on his word. The villagers would have to answer for their dishonesty someday. But the villagers, arms weighed down with gold, were more than willing to take that chance. Uh, hey, Arthur's son heard from the mouth of the tent. He looked at the two pence in his hands. Did the dead man owe you money too? No, the young man at the entrance said. The prince stepped out of the tent to see a young man, about his age, wearing a coat with flecks of dried porridge on it, and a belt that said, Jack the Giant Killer. Jack said that he was honored to meet the prince, but then Arthur's son cut him off. How do you know I'm the prince? Arthur's son asked, next to what remained of his silk tent and horse that had been used to exclusively haul gold. Well, for starters, you're not covered in sh Look, it doesn't matter. I'm not here for your money, Jack informed the prince. He was here to tell the young man that it was an extraordinarily bad idea to give away free money to the village. The prince sighed. Yeah, he had figured that one out. Jack said that he had been on his way to King Arthur's court to pledge himself to the legendary king. But this had been a fortunate meeting. He bowed low before the prince, saying that while he didn't possess a sword, those were super expensive, he would serve the prince. The prince told him to rise. He had no money. Jack laughed. Welcome to the rest of Britain in the Middle Ages. He might not have money, but he was still an honorable man, as evidenced by his generosity. Besides, if nothing else, Jack still got a horse out of the deal and no longer had to walk everywhere. They slept in what remained of the tent. It, too, had been stripped clean of embroidery and expensive silks to pay the dead man's very real and legally binding debts. The next morning, as they rode from town, an old woman stood beside the road. Don't do it, don't make eye contact, Jack said as they passed the mumbling elderly woman. Arthur's son couldn't help himself. Please, please, sir, he's owed me two pence these last seven years, the woman managed. Arthur's son felt the last two pence in his pouch. He looked over to Jack, who was whispering a, no, no, do not do it, and shaking his head. But the prince ignored his worldly new servant and pressed his last two pence in the elderly woman's hands. The woman thanked the prince and then turned back toward town. Jack said he hoped the prince enjoyed hard tack and sleeping on the ground, 
because that's all they could afford at this point. The prince smiled and said that sometimes doing what's right is its own reward. Neither of them saw the elderly woman straighten up and jog back to town to brag about how she got another two pence out of the prince. Are you sure this is a good idea? The prince asked Jack as they looked on the giant's castle in the distance. They had no place to sleep that night. Not even a tent big enough for both of them. There were rumors, of course, of a giant nearby. And so Jack said that they should stay with him for the night. That seems super dangerous, the prince said, staring off into the distance. Jack nodded, oh yeah, absolutely. But honestly, it always seemed to work out for him. He told the prince to hang back. He'd go check it out. Arthur's son yelled out, asking Jack what he was going to do. Jack threw up his hands. He had no idea. He'd figure it out on the way. Hey, hey, you home? Jack yelled as he pounded on the door. The giant, with three heads this time, popped them over the wall. Who was it? Someone he could eat? <laughs> the giant laughed. He was joking, of course. He would eat anyone. It's your cousin Jack. Come on, bud. The giant grew wide-eyed. Yeah. Hey, Jack. Jackie boy, long time no see. Yeah, it's been what, like 10 years? When was the last time our family got together? In that castle we took ridiculously easily and then lost somehow more easily? Jack reminded the giant, not at all making it up as he went along. The giant smiled. That's the one. How's it going? Uh, not great, bud. Jack barked and glanced behind him. You know King Arthur, right? The one with the sword and stone and the knights and the moral ambiguity? Yeah, his son is on his way here right now. He's passed through the area on some war at the head of an army. And if he sees the giant, he won't stop until he takes back the castle. The giant started hyperventilating with three heads. Why did the humans hate them so much? Was it because they were so tall and good looking? Jack shrugged. I mean... That or because they constantly butchered and ate humans. Definitely one of those two things, though. Anyway, he broke away from town as soon as he heard. They were family, after all. The giant thanked Jack and asked what he should do. Twenty minutes later, Jack was pushing the lock on a massive vault in the basement as the giant sat huddled in the dark. Jack wondered if the giant had enough air in there to last the night. But on a deeper, more personal level, he truly did not care. We'll see how a giant feels about being left in a damp, cold vault all night, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. The next morning, when the prince was out of smell range, something really important for giants, I guess, Jack unlocked the door and freed the giant, who gasped in the morning air and thanked Jack for saving his life. Jack waved his hand. Not so loud, please. He, the prince's army, had found the wine cellar and had probably too much. They had massive headaches this morning and could the giant ease up on all the hugs, please? The giant said that he owed Jack his life. What did Jack want in return? Jack was about to say a free hotel with all-you-can-drink wine was nice, 
but then he remembered the sword, cloak, cap, and slippers, which hung on the wall over the giant's bed. Those, Jack told him. The giant replied that Jack knew not what he asked. The cloak will make you invisible. The cap will tell you anything you want to know. The sword will cut anything in half, and the slippers will take you anywhere you want to go in a second. Jack cocked an eyebrow, and that was supposed to dissuade him? The giant owed Jack his life. Go get those things now. So, Jack the Giant Killer finally let a giant live. But only because that giant basically turned him into a superhero. And sleeping in a damp, cold vault all night had given him a cough that no amount of medieval leeches could cure. Whatever you do, don't mention that she's possessed by seven devils. It's a sore subject, the prince whispered to Jack as the woman led them into the castle. They had found it before nightfall, and she had invited them in. She lived there with only a handful of servants, but because of her reputation, no one dared to try to take her castle. Jack had to admit it. If she wasn't possessed by seven demons, it was a nice way to keep a castle to yourself in medieval Britain. The lady sat them all down for dinner. And then things really got started. She sidled up next to the prince, who had absolutely no problem with that. Jack was content to eat dinner by himself at the far end of the table, while the prince made eyes with the lady, and, one must assume, the seven demons living inside of her. When the prince had a drop of wine on his lips, the lady took her handkerchief out and wiped his mouth. She looked deep into his eyes. I have a task for you, she said. She took the handkerchief and tucked it into her bosom. The prince must show her this handkerchief tomorrow, or he would lose his head. The prince cocked an eyebrow. Oh, really? Wait, were they flirting? Because there was an awful lot of treason mixed in with that flirting. The lady smiled and rose from the table. It was time for her to go to bed. She, she just threatened to kill me if I didn't bring the handkerchief. But she took the handkerchief. Should I follow her? What's going on? The prince asked Jack. Jack could only shrug his shoulders. Definitely don't follow her. I mean, she's possessed by seven demons. All this made even less sense to him. But he had his ways of finding out. Minutes later, as Jack watched from the safety of his invisibility cloak, he saw the lady rise from bed and just stand there in the darkness of the room, staring at the wall. If you think this paranormal activity stuff would phase Jack, well, the guy had faced death multiple times at the hands of giants. This was just gimmicky. When he saw a flash and smell brimstone, things really got moving. In the darkness of the room, a face glowed. Even Jack couldn't help but shudder. It was Lucifer himself, Satan. Seven voices cried out in unison from the lady of the castle, telling their master the plan to kill the son of King Arthur through a complicated hide-and-seek game. Because they're demons, it's not like they could just kill him anyway. They pulled the handkerchief from the lady's dress and handed it to Satan, where the demon smiled a sinister smile and placed it on the high shelf in the room. Yeah, the fate of the future of this Briton hung in the balance. King Arthur's heir would die if he didn't have this handkerchief and the devil used the same method one would use to keep it out of reach of a toddler. The devil vanished from the room. The young lady collapsed on the bed. And Jack, well, 
Jack grabbed the handkerchief and got out of there. The prince wasn't going to waste time and wait until dinner. I mean, it's not like Satan is known for being tricky or anything. At breakfast, the next morning, he presented the lady of the castle with the handkerchief. She froze. The high shelf didn't keep it away from him? This guy was good. During the day, the lady excused herself, and the demons once again called on their master. They groveled before him, as he chewed them out for betraying his trust. None of them really choosing to point out that it was his plan to put it on the high shelf. The devil told the lady what she was to say at dinner that night. At said dinner, the lady turned to the prince, saying that she had another task. Show me tomorrow morning the last lips I kiss tonight, or you will lose your head. The prince, without missing a beat, said that he would be able to tell her the last lips she kissed, if they were his lips. Ah, oh, look at you and your moves, the lady said, but no. Show her the lips or he died. Night. Still shocked at this being two parts flirting and one part treason, King Arthur's son looked with consternation at Jack, who rolled his eyes and told the prince that he would take care of it. You want lips? Jack shouted through the door at 4am, because this is how you get lips. After the prince opened the door, Jack pushed his way through and slammed Satan's severed head down on the table. It turned out to be super easy. The demons and the lady met with Satan in the anteroom where Lucifer told her to kiss his lips. The demons did it and then left the room. It was then that Jack used three of the gifts of the previous giant at once. He was already wearing the cloak of invisibility and he used the slippers to transport himself right behind Satan and he raised the rusty sword that would cut anything in half. In less than a moment, Satan's head thudded to the ground. Arthur's son stepped back in horror. What was this? Was this actually Satan's head? Like, what were the wider theological and supernatural implications of killing Satan? Like, the book of Revelation, is that... Jack waved his hands. The prince was overthinking things and looking a gift horse in the mouth, when he should be looking at Satan's mouth and the lips that were going to save his life. Huh. They're a little chapped, actually, the prince said on closer inspection. Jack shrugged. Well, with all the fires, hell's probably really dry. And so, that morning at breakfast, the prince showed the lady of the castle Satan's severed head. It turned her stomach because it was a severed head at the breakfast table, but it also turned the metaphorical stomachs of seven demons that took up residence in her. They bolted in an instant, and the lady was free. <laughs> giants before the gifts had been too easy. Shooting fish in a barrel would actually be more difficult. But he was Jack the Giant Killer. And he was bored. Jack had escorted King Arthur's son and the Lady of the Castle back to Camelot, where he was the best man at the prince's wedding, and became a knight of the round table to boot. Almost immediately bored of the knight's drama, and more than a little unnerved by some doofus named Yvain, who kept a lion as a house cat, Jack left to do what he did best. Kill giants. It was after all, embroidered on his belt. He had tracked the giant to a clearing, but the creature sat on a log. Jack sat not six feet from him, saying that it wouldn't be long before he had the giant by his beard. Jack actually missed it first, 
and cut the giant's nose off. It wasn't until the second try that the giant's head came crashing down. When Jack went to the giant's lair, he freed all the captives the giant was fattening up to eat and added more chests of gold to his personal fortune. It was cool, he supposed. And things continued like this. He killed Thunderdell in the Northern Dales, the two-headed giant that was driving all the farmers and peasants from the land like chaff on the wind. Jack took off the invisibility cloak and led the giant to a bridge that Jack had weakened. The giant dropped when he found the broken plank and he was being held in place by only his two heads. When Jack relieved him of those, the giant crashed to the valley below. Jack's life continued on like this. He grew in renown and power and extreme and insurmountable boredom. It was like, give him a challenge. He killed two giants with nothing more than a length of rope in his wits. He had cut off Satan's head. Nothing was difficult anymore. And then he heard about Galagantua, the largest giant who ever lived, and his friend, the wizard. Jack heard the story of Galagantua when someone walked up to him in a tavern one night, asking if he was Jack the Giant Killer. Jack pointed to his belt, now overrun with notches. I don't know. Was he? The man dropped to a knee and begged the giant killer for his help. Up on the hills to the north there was a giant, Galagantua. He had teamed up with a sorcerer. They turned every knight who went to that castle to try to kill them into animals. Jack set his beer down. Did the peasant think that they did that because knights were coming to their home trying to kill them? The peasant didn't understand the question. Giants were always evil and knights were always good. Whatever, Jack said. He'd do it. The magician element might actually make this kind of challenging. They had very high intelligence. Jack finished his beer, took off his boots and hooked them on his pack and slipped on the slippers. He thought about the dark, creepy castle on the hills to the north and in an instant, he was before the castle gates. Oh, shoot, he said, throwing on the invisibility cloak over his shoulders. The griffin sentries at the top of the walls almost spotted him. That was a nice touch, you know. This might actually be a challenge. Ugh. Seriously? Just inside the gate, there was a horn hanging underneath the sign that read, Whoever shall this trumpet blow will cause the giant's overthrow. The black enchantment he will break and gladness out of sadness make. Jack nodded and unhooked the trumpet. Well, this was just great. If you have a trumpet that will break all your enchantments and overthrow you, don't leave it hanging by the front door with a red sign that says exactly what it does. This wasn't even a rookie mistake. And yeah, that's exactly what was there in the original story, and I have no idea why. It's not only a massive strategic mistake on the part of the giants, but it's just kind of bad storytelling. Anyway, we're committed to this to the end, so here we go. Jack might have liked a challenge, but when the enemy hands you the self-destruct codes to his base, you take the win. Jack blew the horn, and the castle shook. Mr. Wizard, I, I don't feel so good, Jack heard as he walked to the next room to see Galagantua stumbling toward the magician's arms. Jack strode over. He could fix that for the giant. He lopped off the creature's head, before the creature disappeared from existence. Jack turned to the sorcerer, whose gaze shifted from shock to anger to fear. Jack raised his sword, but it was met with a whirlwind to the chest, and he was slammed into the wall of the castle behind him. In the next moment, two things happened. The wizard, with his magic, disappeared in the blink of an eye to a faraway land, forever beyond Jack's reach, 
and the castle wall Jack was resting on dissolved behind him. The evil castle was no more. All the animals that had been kept in their cages turned back to knights, and the whole group found themselves on a green hill. In beaming sunlight, the enchantments on the castle were broken. It was over. And by over, I mean completely over. I guess the giants weren't sticklers for punctuation, because the sign that read, whoever shall this trumpet blow will cause the giants overthrow, with giants being apostrophe S, the singular possessive, really should have been the giants S apostrophe, the plural possessive. Because when Jack blew the trumpet, giants turned to smoke and vanished from the British Isles forever. A couple things. I really hope someone went to their respective lairs and let out the humans they all kept in cages for food. And two, the giants really should have kept that trumpet in a different place. I mean, even a simple lockbox would have been better than right out there in the open, with a sign telling exactly what it would do. So, Jack retired. It wasn't just knights in the castle either. There were a handful of women. On his way back, he escorted the duke's daughter, and the pair fell in love. Giant attacks being a massive problem for his kingdom, King Arthur agreed to the marriage and Jack the Giant Killer married the daughter of the Duke of something, and when the time came, Jack became the Duke of something. Married with a castle, lands, and children, Jack was happy. He might have been a Duke, but there was one title he would always go by. Jack the Giant Killer. And, if you live in the British Isles, and haven't been attacked by a giant, you can thank Jack. Or just the really poor placement of a trumpet. That's it for the story this week. Next week, we're back on the boat to the Trojan War. Or sleeping beside it, because that boat is stuck at the last port in Greece. And... Thanks to a misstep by High King Agamemnon, the Greek fleet isn't going anywhere. There is one thing that Agamemnon could do to get things moving again, but he just can't bring himself to do it. If you'd like to support the show beyond telling a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a squirrel toilet seat decal, a decal that makes it look like a giant squirrel is crawling from your toilet, in what is now my nightmare, you can get extra episodes source pack ebooks and ad-free versions of the show that aren't a way to shock your guests when they already have to go to the bathroom. I mean, seriously, think about timing on that one. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this time is Pixiu from China. Pixiu was one of the Jade Emperor's favorite sons. If you remember from the Monkey King episodes, the Jade Emperor is one of the supreme beings in Chinese mythology. Pixie was the ninth and youngest son and was allowed to go anywhere and do anything in the house. Well, one day, snooping around in dad's office, Pixie broke the official seal of the Jade Emperor, a tangible representation of the Emperor's power. What did the Jade Emperor do? Did he realize his need to set boundaries with a spoiled child? Use this as a teachable moment about responsibility and consequences? turn his child into a monster without a rectum? If you picked option number three, you would be correct. Because the Jade Emperor, according to the texts I've read on this, had a hilarious sense of humor. Because 
after he changed his son into a monster with no rectum, he decreed that his son would stay like that forever. Oh, and also because he broke heaven's laws, aka dad's law, he would also only be able to eat representations of wealth. So gold, gemstones, precious metals, and the like. But remember, he can eat things, he just can't expel them. So Pixiu lives in a state of constant constipation. There are also versions where he drinks demon blood. So he rids the land of demons, but the result is still the same. The demon blood turns to riches inside of him, and he still can't get rid of them. Despite this odd backstory, the Pixu has apparently been adopted as a lucky charm. What seems, to me at least, like a cautionary tale of voraciously hoarding wealth that you will never be able to use to your own detriment has been taken as an auspicious symbol, where the Pixie represents the ability to gain wealth without losing it. Facing outward from a door or window, the little Pixie statues are supposed to attract wealth to your house. It apparently doesn't work in the bathroom, though. I think that's still a sore subject for the Pixie. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.